Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to SEAC Stories, brought to you by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. This podcast tells the stories of our members. I'm your host, Natalie Pearson. The ocean is more connective device than barrier, bringing together diverse topics, time periods and geographies. It has linked and connected the various countries of Asia into a segmented and at the same time a unitary circuit over roughly the past 500 years since the so-called Age of Contact initiated a quickening of patterns and engagements in fact already existed. But despite the centrality of the maritime domain, there hasn't really been a single study looking at Asia's seas through a broad macro lens. Today's guest, in his most recent book and indeed through his work over many years, has sought to address that gap. To talk to us about the sea in Asian history, I'm very pleased to welcome Professor Eric Tagliacozzo to the SEAC Stories podcast. Eric is Professor of History at Cornell University, where his research has centred on the history of people, ideas and material in motion in and around Southeast Asia, especially in the colonial age. Eric is Director of the Comparative Muslim Societies Program and a core faculty member of the Cornell Southeast Asia Program. He is co-editor of the journal Indonesia and also co-edits the Cornell Modern Indonesia Project series. He's written three major monographs and edited and co-edited a great many more. Most recently, he has published In Asian Waters with Princeton about the linked maritime histories of Asia from Yemen to Yokohama. On a personal level, Eric was my host at Cornell University earlier this year when I had the good fortune of receiving some funding through the University of Sydney's Cornell Mobility Scheme to spend time in beautiful Ithaca in his esteemed company. So it is truly a pleasure to welcome you to the SEAC Stories podcast, Eric, and to continue those conversations we started at Cornell. Thank you. It's lovely to be here, Natalie. So we're here today to talk about the sea in Asian history, one of my favourite topics. But this is a theme that has interested you for a long time and connects the three monographs that you've published. I'm going to ask you to tell us a little bit about each of these books, but I wanted to start by asking you, what is it about the sea that has so captured your imagination and attention over many decades? Well, again, thank you so much for having me on this podcast, and it's really wonderful to be here. It's nighttime here in Ithaca, uh, morning time there in Oz, and that's one of the things, I guess, that might usefully answer your question, which is that the sea really connects us all, no matter how far away we are on the surface of the planet from each other. Right now, we're about almost as far as we can be on the surface of the Earth away from each other, yet if I was able to get down to the coast, to New York City, where I'm from, theoretically, I could get into one boat and in one journey, get all the way to Sydney, where Natalie is. And it's that kind of amazing sense of possibility, the possibility of sea travel for most of human history that has really captured my attention and really captured my admiration for people who spend a lifetime on the sea. So that is something that has been a real current in my work from the first book up until this most recent book. Very evocative start. Thank you. So let's talk about your first book, which was called Secret Trades, Porous Borders, published in 2005 by Yale which actually won the Harry J. Bender Prize from the Association of Asian Studies at the time. What did you set out to do with this book? Well, that book was a continuation of my doctoral dissertation, which I completed at Yale. And really what it tried to do was to look at how smuggling appeared in Southeast Asia in the late 19th and early 20th centuries as something that 
both local states and local people had to contend with as the region started to undergo these new political realities. So during that time period, I was particularly interested in the border that was starting to emerge between British Southeast Asia, or what's today Singapore and Malaysia, and Dutch Southeast Asia, or what's today independent Indonesia. So that's a 3,000-kilometer frontier going from Aceh in the northwest down to Singapore, and then from Singapore up to the northeastern tip of Borneo. So I got very interested in how people started to move across that evolving boundary when previously they had been able to move freely, and now they had two colonial states telling them that their movement had to be mediated by the will and the auspices of the state. It's very interesting that it's called smuggling because, as you say, previous to the imposition of these British borders and these Dutch borders, this was just a trade that took place across the waters. But with the introduction of these new colonial imaginaries, all of a sudden it became something quite different, something that was characterized as as smuggling and as illegal. Yeah, that's right. This was clearly something new in a way, which was that our notion of what a state is and what a border is, is very much conditioned by European historical realities that go back to the Treaty of Westphalia. And these ideas about what a state is, what a border is, what the ways to move across space from my space to your space or your space to my space, these are all definitely mediated through the European tradition. And most parts of the world didn't have any concept of this. And that includes much of Southeast Asia. So what really was happening by the late 19th and early 20th centuries when my first book was set was that there was a new negotiation of these realities as European states brought these European realities to different parts of the world with colonialism. And by making these modern ideas of borders salient in the region, to have a border meant that you had to have people cross that border either legally or illegally through the voluntary auspices of the state. And states decided when those passages, when those crossings were legal and when they were illegal. And the book tried to tease that out over a period of about 50 years from 1865 to 1915. So right around the time of World War I. So your second book was called The Longest Journey, Southeast Asians and the Pilgrimage to Mecca. And that was with Oxford in 2013. How did you go from thinking about smuggling to looking at religious pilgrimage? Yeah, there was actually, as we do with these books, I had collected lots and lots of folders of uh, material. And one of these small folders was kind of bulging with material, and I was only able to use a small amount of it, looking at how both of these colonial states got nervous about the idea of pan-Islamism in Southeast Asia and the fact that there were Muslims from what is today Malaysia and Indonesia going back to the Middle East, performing the Hajj, and then coming back to Southeast Asia with more orthodox leanings towards Islam or ideas that there should be kind of political Islam that moved across what were putative colonial boundaries in the world, those boundaries that we just talked about from my first book. So one of those folders just kept getting larger and larger. I wasn't able to include anywhere near the amount of material that I had in it in the first book. And I started to see the kind of seeds germinating there for a second book about the history of the pilgrimage to Mecca from Southeast Asia. And, you know, of course, that's about as far as you can get in the Islamic world from Mecca and Medina, the two holy cities that are at the center of Islam. But what quickly started to become clear in doing the research about this was that even though Southeast Asia was as far as you can get from Mecca and Medina, many years in the late 19th and early 20th century, 50% 
of all global pilgrims were coming from this part of the world. So despite the fact that it was far away, it was clearly exceedingly important in the histories of the global Hajj. That's an amazing figure. You've just given 50%. Yes, that's right. Uh, and it wasn't just one year. It was a number of years that it was hovering around half the global totals of Hajis and Hajjas going to and from Mecca and back to Southeast Asia. So it was clearly a very important part of the world. And of course, we can think about the legacy of that, which is that today the world's largest Muslim country is Indonesia. So Indonesia is allowed more pilgrims every year to Saudi Arabia than any other country based on the size of its Muslim population. That's very interesting. So in that book, did you look at, obviously, Mecca and the Hajj is important to Southeast Asia, but did you also look at the importance of Southeast Asia to Mecca? Yeah, I tried to look a bit at that too. And there are others who have written about this more than I have and who wrote about it earlier than I did as well. But uh, it was clearly important for educational purposes. There were lots of Southeast Asian Muslims that started to go to the Middle East to get an education there, a religious education, and then they would come back to Southeast Asia and that conferred upon them a certain status. It also spread different Islamic schools of law, for example, through Southeast Asia. So it was definitely a two-way street. I think the best way of looking at it, at least the way that seemed most useful to me, was thinking about this relationship between the two regions across the Indian Ocean as something of a, a conveyor belt with people and material and ideas moving in both directions. And these journeys, were they taking place on the ocean or were they across the land? Almost all of the journeys were by the ocean. It was just simply too far away to really conceive of doing a journey like this by land. So it really seems to have been the further away you moved, at least pushing east from Mecca and Medina, by far the chances of you performing that journey by ship went up and up and up. So in the beginning, these were people moving mostly on sail ships. But by the 19th century, European steamships started to dominate the Indian Ocean routes. And that added a different layer into this history, which was that pilgrims were going on European ships to perform their Muslim religious duties. And of course, as I said, many of these European colonial states were very wary about the kinds of Islam that were coming back to their colonial dominions in Southeast Asia. So is there any evidence of those commercial ship owners denying passage to these hajis? Less evidence of that and more evidence of the states actually deciding that certain people were kind of undesirable and that it might not be within the state's interest to have certain people performing hajj. And sometimes people were banished. For example, there's a long history of that, centuries-old history of banishment away from the Dutch East Indies, for example, to places like Dutch South Africa for certain figures. But they also sent people to other places as well. Okay, so that second book came out out of a little folder that got bigger and bigger. I'm sure your third book had a very big folder of its own. So this most recent book, of which I have a prized copy in my hands as we speak, is called In Asian Waters, Oceanic Worlds from Yemen to Yokohama, and that's published with Princeton. And to use your words, you wanted to see how looking through a series of different windows might tell us something about the role that the sea has played in Asian history. So how does this most recent book build on or depart from the approach that you've taken in the first two books? That's a good question. And uh, I wish I could say it was all a deeply planned enterprise. But, you know, I think what seems to have happened is that the books got progressively larger and larger in terms of the amount of territory they were covering and also the amounts of time. 
So the first book was really about 50 years around the turn of the 20th century, and it was a 3,000-kilometer frontier between two emerging colonial Southeast Asian spheres. The second book kind of stretched to a bunch of different centuries and started to cover all of Southeast Asia in thinking about this one particular idea about the pilgrimage to Mecca from this part of the world. And the third book, In Asian Waters, which just came out, is larger still and is basically thinking about how the waters that stretch between West Asia and East Asia kind of spill over many shores and how we might think about the connective possibilities of these waters as they pushed across different spheres of what we now think of as different parts of Asia. So I think there's a common theme in all of the books of looking at connection, of looking at transnationalism and transregionalism, but it's gotten more explicit with the publication of each book. So it's a really ambitious book that takes a zoomed out look at the maritime connections through the Indian Ocean, you know, from the east coast of Africa, in fact, and right up into Japan and China. But it also focuses right in on specific geographies. What are the benefits of looking both so broadly and so intimately at Asian maritime worlds? Well, I think there are several. And one is that the academy where we all live and make our bread is basically subdivided into these rubrics like Middle Eastern studies, South Asian studies, East Asian studies, Southeast Asian studies, the last of which I'm a a card-carrying member of. But what I think is closer to the reality of how history worked is that people moved great distances and had connections with other places, often family-based, sometimes economically-based, at other times religiously-based, as the second book tried to argue. So I think by looking a little bit more broadly, we break down some of these rather artificial groupings that put us in place in the academy. And there are reasons to put us in place in the academy. We can't learn all languages and have all experiences, both of archives and of interviewing people. And absolutely, we start to learn some parts of Asia better than others as Asianists. And that's certainly true for me, too. I have my language capabilities most fully in Southeast Asia, and that's really the part of Asia that I know the most about compared to the other parts. But I think when you start to follow some of these threads, you can actually see things from a little bit of a higher vantage point. And like any time that you do that, you're going to be able to see some things that you can't see lower to the ground. And at the same time, you give up certain avenues of that vision as well. So what I wanted to try to do in the book was to try to do my best to get the advantages of having that high zoom point in thinking about what these patterns meant over a large stretch of geography, but at the same time, not lose sight of the stories of individual people that were interesting to me or meaningful to me, and that kind of illustrated some of the things that I was trying to talk about writ large, but within their own families or their own lives. I think it does a beautiful job of achieving that. But I do want to ask you, you know, in its grand ambitions with geographies and temporalities, what are the implications for area studies? Do you think area studies still has its place in writing histories of the ocean? Sure, I do. I'm at a place, Cornell, where area studies is taken very seriously. And particularly for Southeast Asian studies, this is a a place that for many, many decades has been one of the main centers for studying Southeast Asia. And that is based, in fact, on the strength of area studies, which is that you have to learn languages from the place that you study. You can't just be kind of through European 
research languages or just looking at something just basically through English, you should have some years under your belt trying to learn about the people and the places that you're studying before you study them. And I definitely believe in that. And I'm part of that tradition here that, again, goes way before me. So it is taken seriously, area studies, and I think there is absolutely a place for that in studying the oceans. But I think once in a while, we can try to look wider. And there are these advantages in doing so. It seems inevitable to me that there will be some criticism of the book by some people who focus on on West Asia or East Asia or South Asia, places that I might not know as well. And that's that comes with the territory. I certainly don't pretend to know everything. And some parts of this huge maritime continuum, I know better than others. And so because of that, I've tried to rely on the expert advice of others. I wrote to 25 different colleagues and friends to actually ask their advice about individual chapters on places that they knew better than I did to try to ask them if I was getting the story right. And of course, in the end, though, you're responsible for what you write. I think you mentioned many of those experts in your acknowledgement section. And I have to say, when I read your acknowledgement section, I was very moved by it. It's a very beautiful piece of writing in and of itself. And one of the things that struck me in that opening was how much of your research is experiential. So even in that acknowledgement section, but also in the body of the book, your writing gives a real sense of familiarity with the sea and what it is like to see only sea, sky and horizon for days on end. Can you tell us a little bit about your experiences at sea, particularly as a a younger researcher? Sure. Maybe I can tell you just two quick stories that I put towards the end of the book. And that is, I'm a historian, so I make my living mostly behind a desk. I did, did and do want to be able to kind of have some experience of these places that I talk about and the people I talk about. I think it is important to try to get some dirt under your fingernails and go see the things that you write about. Or some salt on your skin, perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would also that would also work. So yeah, so it, at the end of the book, I talk about two experiences. One was in Southeast Asia, just taking a Bugis ship across the Java Sea when I was in my early 20s from Makassar to Surabaya, so from Sulawesi to Java. And I was on that ship for a couple of days, two or three days, and sleeping on a sack of salt on that ship on the deck. And kind of just getting a sense when you're out in the middle of the Java Sea, what these ships were like, because some of these ships are not hugely different from what they looked like a century or two ago. They're a little bit bigger now. They do have motors now, but they don't always use the motors. They are equipped with sails. And if they can save money, if there's a good wind blowing, they often will do that so that they don't have to spend money on fuel. So I really remember that like it was yesterday, even though it was 30 years ago. And a number of the experiences in the book are from, you know, times going back to 30 years ago. But I do try to talk about them. And another one was on the on the opposite end of the Indian Ocean off the coast of East Africa and was taking a, a very overloaded local steamer from Zanzibar to Mombasa. So from Tanzania to Kenya. And that steamer went at night. And I was on that ship with several hundred local people, and it started to really list to one side. And I really remember that quite as well. Unfortunately, this kind of thing happens far more than it should on the coast of East Africa. And some of those ships go down and often with a great loss of life. So I didn't know that quite as well as I should have when I was 22 years old, but I do remember it. And uh, I remember those, those lights twinkling on the east coast of Africa, and it made a huge impression on me. Goodness, what a memory. You've really drawn a picture for us there about what it's like 
at sea when you can see the land. And I guess that is a good opportunity to ask you, what can thinking about the ocean do in a way that differs from thinking about the land? Thinking about oceans for me is thinking about connections. We tend to think of water as a dividing mechanism in a lot of history, or at least that's the way history was presented to us in many ways when we were younger. But of course, history changes and evolves, and there were a group of scholars that were becoming important and starting to think about the sea in in other ways. So I mentioned some of them in the beginning of the book, people like Bernard Balin for The Atlantic, who instead of seeing a quote-unquote old world and a new world, saw them together as part of one world and wrote in that way. Someone like Kayan Chowdhury did the same kind of thing for the Indian Ocean, really seeing the Indian Ocean as a lake that connected East Africa, the Middle East, South Asia, and Southeast Asia, and kind of really set the patterns for a field in doing that. And when you look at the ocean in that way, it's a history of connection rather than a history of marking off places one from the other. And maybe the best example is Fernand Brodel, who did that for the Mediterranean. So instead of focusing on European history for the northern part of the Mediterranean, the history of the Levant for the eastern side of the Mediterranean, and the history of the Maghreb for the southern side of the Mediterranean, he saw all of it as part and parcel of one continuum. And that was an idea that really had a huge impact on the field, I think. So now we see these kinds of histories being written, not just of the bodies of water I mentioned, but for example, of the Caribbean. Caribbean is a very fertile place to think about these kinds of connections as well. Yeah, it really is an exciting time to be thinking innovatively about the ocean for scholars. Do you think you will continue to think with the ocean in your future research? What's in your next big folder? That's a great question. I wish I knew at this point because the book just came out a couple of months ago. I'm fresh out of folders at this point. I'm taking a bit of a rest and uh, just teaching and doing administration and all the other parts of our academic lives right now that are important and that are demanded of us uh, by our bosses to make our paychecks. So I'm doing that now. I'd like to think about writing a history of Southeast Asia. That's something that's been on the docket for a while and something that I'm hoping to do, but have to think a little bit more about what some of the best ways of doing that might be. I have no doubt that the sea will feature prominently within that history once you you do turn your attention to it. Almost certainly. (laughs) Let me ask you one final question. It's been a really interesting conversation. How might thinking about sea histories inform our understanding of sea futures? Yeah, that's a great question. And it really does matter. I mean, one of the things that we're seeing now is that the sea is part of the history of the future in very problematic ways with the rising of sea levels and places like Indonesia and parts of coastal East Africa. And certainly a lot of the island chains in the Indian Ocean, for example, are going to be in real trouble if the seas rise as much as scientists think they will. So this is something that has a a kind of urgency, I think, and thinking about histories of the sea hopefully will inform our understanding of how important it is to treat the sea as a resource and something to be respected and not something to just dump our waste into and to allow the planet to warm to a point where the sea levels rise to such an extent that literally hundreds of millions of people are going to have their livelihoods affected by it, and particularly in the global south. So I think that's deeply important. And anytime we think about the future, we do need to think about the past, think about the ways that the sea has been important to human history before now, 
in trying to plan our common futures. Eric, it has been such a pleasure talking to you and getting to know you at Cornell. Congratulations on your latest book, and I hope you can take the time to rest and recover. Talk to your students about the monsoon and do whatever it is you need to do to position yourself to write another incredible monograph. Thank you so much for joining us on SEAC Stories. Thank you so much, Natalie. You've been listening to SEAC Stories, brought to you by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. Make sure to keep up with all our SEAC Stories podcasts by following us on your favourite podcasting app. If you like the show, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, let your friends know about us on social media.